Since I uh, was a teenager, I was uh, declared to be legally blind. Uh, That meant I obviously didn't have very good vision, but through the uh, amazing modern technology and medical care we have today, through a pretty minor surgery actually, I was restored to have 20-20 vision. Now, at first, I got to tell you, it was incredible, uh, you know, when you're waking up in the middle of the night or every morning and you can see things instead of stumbling around uh, for your glasses, walking around in the dark everywhere. But I got to say, probably like many of you who have perfect vision, I pretty soon started taking it for granted. I I started taking my sight for granted. Now, this morning... We're going to continue our series in the Gospel of John. We have called this series Encountering Christ because we're looking at different encounters that Jesus had with people in this incredible Gospel. We come to John chapter 9, and in John 9, we discover an encounter Jesus has with a man who was actually born blind, which in that day and age was a pretty difficult thing. Now, to put ourselves in this man's shoes, I want us to feel the importance and impact of this encounter. So we did some research this week about how actual blind people describe what it is like to be blind. So as we prepare to put ourselves into this encounter, let's listen together to some of these descriptions of blindness. What is it like to be blind? Is it like having my eyes closed? Well, comparing it to when I could see, the blackness that I have, it's not like the color black. It's more like when you open your eyes in the middle of the night and the room is in pitch black. It's like a very dark, dark gray, black, void. And that's what I see. It's like a black void, gray space, rather than just having your eyes closed. In my right eye, it's black. But as it goes across the spectrum, it becomes gray. So it it kind of fades from black. My light and dark now have completely gone. I can obviously feel the sun in my face, and sometimes, um, you know how when you look at the sun and you get almost like a sparkle in your eye, like a firework? My eyes are picking up something, but I wouldn't be able to see any movement at all. I mean, I wouldn't be able to tell if I'd switched a light off at night or not. You know, I was struck when I first heard that, how apt of a description that is of many of us. At least one point in our lives. I heard words like, it's like a void. A dark void. And doesn't that describe where many of us in this room have found ourselves at one point in our lives? I'm going to give away this story in the very beginning. Not a very good thing to do uh, if you're a preacher. But as you can probably imagine, Jesus is going to heal this man. He is going to restore his physical sight. But the reason I don't feel bad about giving it away is because I want you to know from the outset that this story is not about physical blindness. This is a story about spiritual blindness, which is something we all face 
as human beings. In fact, if you're following on your notes there, Jesus uses a man's blindness to expose our spiritual blindness. In other words, as he's been doing throughout the Gospel of John, he uses a physical miracle to reveal a spiritual reality. As we discovered last week, if you were here, we discovered that every person who has ever been born has been born blind. We are born in bondage. But the truth, the truth can set us free. And yet throughout this series, even though Jesus came to describe what this truth looked like and how to free us from this bondage, we've discovered that people have one of two responses to him, don't they? They either receive that truth and receive their spiritual vision or they refuse it and go back into the darkness. But if you're following here, we learn once again in John chapter 9, like, like with this man, Jesus came to restore our sight. Jesus came to restore our sight. That's what the Gospel of John's all about. He came to restore our sight. Now we can choose whether we want to see, or we can choose whether we want to go back to darkness, but the choice is ours. So let's look at this powerful story in John chapter 9. I hope maybe many of you have your Bibles already open. If you don't, I encourage you to grab it. Turn it to John 9. And if you don't have a Bible, we say this every week, but grab one of the red ones in the seat in front of you. And I would suggest even more than usual that you're going to want to follow along in this story because this really is one of the funniest and most enjoyable stories in the entire New Testament. We're starting in John 9, verse 1. We're going to work our way all the way through this story story. So I encourage you to do that. You're going to see what I mean by that, but this is just a great story if it's nothing else. So let's start in John 9, verse 1. Here we go. As he went along, as Jesus went along, he saw a blind man from birth. Now you're going to notice throughout this story, I'm going to pause a lot, so get ready to do the head jerk thing, but you're going to notice throughout this story, they make a really big deal about the fact that this man was born blind as opposed to becoming blind later on in his life. And so I wondered about this, reading it this week, so I called an ophthalmologist in our church to ask his perspective on this story. Why are they so concerned about this detail? And he basically told me that the reason that this is so significant that he was born blind is because in that day, they may have had a few crude methods to fix something like cataracts or you know, when people would become blind for some reason, but there was absolutely no hope for somebody who was born blind to receive their sight again. In fact, if you're following, nothing could heal someone who was born blind. Nothing. There's no hope for this guy. About the only thing that he could do, in fact, was beg. And that is where Jesus finds him here in verse 1. Look at verse 2. What an interesting verse this is. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? No helping. Let's just have a theological discussion here about why he's blind, right? This was actually a common belief held in that day that disabled people, whether it was blindness or some other disability, suffered from their disability because of their own sin or because of the sin of their parents. Does this kind of bad theology still exist today? I meet people who view our lives like it's this moral slot machine. I do act A and out comes either a reward, if it's a good act that I did, or a punishment, if it's a bad act I did. God is in heaven just waiting for us to go offline, right? And as soon as we do, bam, here comes the lightning. Now, what I don't want us to misunderstand is, do our actions sometimes have consequences? If I smoke, I probably shouldn't be surprised that I come end up getting lung cancer. 
I shouldn't be disappointed in God or, or wonder, well, how did this possibly happen? But what they're talking about here is this idea that God is just waiting for that moment when you make that one mistake and bam, he's going to nail you. Now, we can't be too hard on the disciples here because they're just understanding the world on how it was taught to them. So I want to know, don't you? What does Jesus have to say about this kind of theology? Consequence, or you do action A, consequence B automatically follows. Let's read his response in John 9, 3. Some of you might have the wrong label there, but it's in that first gray box. It says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. That'll rock your theology a bit, won't it? His blindness. Jesus says, in effect, it's not a punishment. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity. If you're following on your notes, this man is blind so that God's glory, so that God's glory might be displayed. This blindness is all about God wanting to do something in and through this man's situation. In other words, Jesus is essentially saying, I am not going to be involved in such profitless talk about who sinned here. Regardless to say, neither of them sinned. This is an opportunity for God to do something to glorify himself. Now, of course, I want to pause here and ask the question, can that then be applied to all suffering? The suffering you face, the suffering I face, does sin ever have a direct correlation to suffering? And the answer is no. We can't apply this one statement to all of our situations. Jesus doesn't say that all suffering is just this random event that has nothing to do with sin. In fact, we know suffering has everything to do with sin. We live in a fallen and ruined world that is waiting to be restored to its original state. And the result of this fallen world is sin and suffering, as many of us know too well. But, I'm going to say this twice, Jesus makes it clear here. Jesus makes it clear here that suffering is not always directly traceable to personal sin. Suffering is not always related to personal sin. In fact, I hope when you read Jesus' response here, is that what stands out to me is he actually gives a positive reason for suffering. Not a negative one for this man's blindness. He says, in effect, this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for God's glory to be displayed in his life. What if we viewed our suffering that way? A lot easier said than done, isn't it? I mean, I look at different characters in the Bible. I think of Joseph, who went through some incredible suffering. I mean, sold as a slave in prison, and yet he's able to say words like this in Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Man, that's faith. That is seeing suffering as an opportunity. Well, what about normal people, not like biblical heroes? I think of the song we sang last week, written by a woman by the name of Fanny Crosby, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. She was blind her whole life. Still, I've been in the seat that you're in, you're going, you know, we can talk theologically about suffering. I can stand up here on stage and give you all the reasons why it happens, but what about me? And I hesitated to to share this with you, but I don't want you to think I stand up here without my own suffering, that I'm not, and Jeff isn't, and whoever stands up here doesn't have the same exact issues and problems that we do, but I hesitate sharing this because I don't want sympathy. 
I'm not trying to make myself uh, into some poor, sad figure, but some of you know I have suffered from a genetic kidney disease from my birth. My sister and I both have it. My brother uh, does not. And in fact, it is such a rare kidney disease that most people who have it die by the age of two. And yet, she and I are still both alive and kicking. And uh, I know the reason for that. And I've discovered uh, throughout my life, you see, it's such a rare thing. And we spent a lot of our early years in, the, in hospitals and universities, you know. We were being studied and examined. They couldn't believe uh, how we survived, what's going on in their lives here. And I learned very early on that we were like medical miracles. And if, which I don't always have, hear me say that, if I view it as an opportunity, I always get these new doctors who will come in and they'll be like, are you sure this is what you have? I mean, da 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 da. I can see it as an opportunity to say, I can tell you why I'm alive today. It's an opportunity God has given me over and over again to glorify Him even in my suffering. Now, I'd love to tell you, I, I'm glad I have it, uh, but I do, I'm not. And I don't always view it as an opportunity. Sometimes I feel real sorry for myself. But there are times when God has given me opportunities to display his glory. Pray for me that I take advantage of them more often. Friends, if you've been hit with a terrible blow, if you haven't, you will. And part of what we learn here is that as Christians, we have the opportunity to show the world how to live and perhaps even how to die. Now listen, this is not how it was meant to be. This is why Jesus came and broke into this world. We call these things like miracles, what he's about to do here. We call it a miracle, but that's really how it was supposed to be. This is how it was meant to be when he created the world. And it's not always going to be the way it is now. But if you're following on your notes there, suffering can be an opportunity to glorify God in our lives. It can be an opportunity to glorify God in our lives. Now the reason we know this is not how it is meant to be is what Jesus says in verses 4 and 5. He says, as long as it is day, while he's here, while he was here on earth, it's day. We must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work while I am in the world. What does he say here? I am the light of the world. I am am shining light into the darkness. I am showing what God's kingdom was really meant to be. That's an outrageous claim, right? I mean, again, if you've been with us in this series, here he is again using this I am phrase. The same words describe God gave Moses his name when he asked him his name. He says, I am who I am. And Jesus once again takes that, referring to himself as God in the flesh. I am God and I came to shine light into this dark world. And I'm going to do it by taking the darkness that we all suffer from upon my shoulders on the cross. And one day, I'm going to make all things new. An outrageous claim. Outrageous claim. A carpenter from Nazareth saying, I am the light of the world. But as he so often does, Jesus is now going to back up this ridiculous claim. Look at verse 6. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. That's really weird. I mean, do you think Jesus is like bored with the different ways he's been doing miracles? So he's like, well, today I think I'm just going to spit. Or does this have some sort of purpose to it? Is this random or is there a purpose? What's the deal with the mud? What's the deal with the spit? Well, in my opinion, this is not random. 
In fact, I think he does the miracle the way he does it for two specific reasons. First of all, the word there for mud, it's the same word in the Bible for clay. Now, what does clay symbolize in Scripture for you Bible readers? In Genesis, we are told that God formed man from the mud, from the clay of the ground. Jeremiah says God is the potter and we are the... He molds us and shapes us into who he wants us to be. Paul likens believers to earthen vessels or clay pots in which God stores up his treasure. Now clay is not the strongest of materials, would you agree? Pretty fragile. I mean, if I had a clay pot right now and I dropped it, it, had no, it would have no chance. And that is Jesus' point here if you're falling on your notes. Throughout Scripture, clay is a symbol of human weakness. It's a symbol of human weakness. It describes who we are. When Jesus puts clay or mud over this man's eyes, he's saying something is hindering his sight. And hear me, not just his physical sight. Something is hindering his spiritual sight as well. It is the clay of his humanity. We are fallen creatures. Clay vessels, fragile and weak. Now the second reason Jesus does the miracle this way is going to be revealed in a little bit. So let's first read verse 7. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seen. Now I notice... In this, Jesus expects the man to do something about his own healing, doesn't he? He asks him by faith to make the journey down to this pool of Siloam. I checked it out. That would have been a really tough walk for a blind man. Do you think he might have been aware of the ruckus that he was causing? Here comes this blind man with this mud gooped all over his face, making his way to this pool. He probably felt a little foolish, but I'll bet you for the first time maybe ever, he had a firecracker of hope in his heart that said, maybe, maybe this is going to actually work. And we read, it does work, and immediately, first thing he does is he makes a beeline towards home. I can imagine as he begins running, he starts to see clearly these faces of people who had spoken to him as he had begged on the street, and he recognizes them, and he's screaming, I can see, I can see! I'm guessing he ran as fast as he could. He burst into his neighborhood with joy. And this is where the fun of this story really begins. Look at verse 8. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted. Can you just see this? I'm the man! It's me! They can't understand, though, how a man who was born blind could see. Verse 10, how then were your eyes open, they demanded. You know what he's thinking at this point, right? Who cares? (laughs) Who cares how it happened? I was blind, and now I see. He replied, the man they called Jesus, he made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, (laughs) nor do I care. I can see. Somebody get the cake. We're the party favors. Where's the parade? I was blind. But now I see. Verse 13, of course. And there was a huge party, and the people began to worship Jesus. No? They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. If this were a movie, the music would cue, right? Dun, dun, dun. Now, 
the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. No. Why, Jesus? You should have known better to do a miracle on the Sabbath, especially the way you did it. And of course, that's the second reason. Jesus did the miracle the way he did it. He came to shine light on the darkness of these petty Sabbath regulations that the Jewish religious leaders had. You see, religion, religion only leads to further blindness, doesn't it? In their eyes, Jesus broke the Sabbath in three separate ways. Check this out. First, because he spat on the ground and made mud, that violated the Sabbath because making mud is work and work is forbidden on the Sabbath. Now, if he had just spat on a rock, that would have been cool. But because he spat in dirt and made mud, not so good. Second, Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath. The rabbi said it is forbidden to heal on the Sabbath day. They specifically said, and I quote, if you find somebody with a broken leg, you can keep it from getting worse, but you cannot make it any better. That would be work, you see. Third, he used spit as a medicine on Sabbath. There was a specific instruction that you could not use spit on a Sabbath day because in their culture, saliva actually was considered to have some medicinal value. So Jesus breaks all three, right? I have come to be light in this world. Verse 15, Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. This poor guy. Can't we just celebrate? Nope. Sorry. We have more questions. Who is really blind in this text, friends? They shouldn't be asking how. They should be asking who. The reason they aren't is because they're the blind ones. This is really important to understanding John 9. You see, they think they know. You're going to see this word know all over. They think they know who God is. And according to who they know God is, Jesus doesn't fit the description. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Of course, they mean there, he doesn't keep it the way we know that he should have kept it. This man is not from God because we know what God is like. We know what God does and we know what God doesn't do. God would not do this. Would you like to meet our God? He's in that box over there. We rarely let him out. But we know that God would never do this. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. Or, you know, I know we can't really understand the tone sometimes when we're just reading uh, scripture, but I wonder if his response was more like this. I don't know, he's a prophet? Who cares? Hello? I can see. I was blind. Verse 18, this is great. I mean, if you don't find this comical, the Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Listen, since I can't explain it, I won't believe it, even though it's standing right in front of my eyes. See, if I base what I believe simply on what I can understand, we'll fall short sometimes, right? They are denying what is right in front of their face. There is a blind man who can now see because they can't explain how it happened. If you're following, because they can't understand it, they won't believe it. I'm going to comment on that later, but how true is that in our culture today? Because they can't understand it, they won't believe it. Verse 19, 
Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? Because this shouldn't be happening. We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. I translate that as, we don't care. He can get a job and move out of the house now. (laughs) Right? This child who has been ridiculed and scorned his whole life, especially by you, been called a sinner, and he's suffering the consequences of his sin. He can see. Now John inserts a really little interesting tidbit here in verses 22 and 23. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. And again, Jeff mentioned this several weeks ago when John uses that term, the Jews. He is speaking specifically about the religious leaders who opposed Jesus, right? For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Now, what's the big deal about that? What's the big deal about being kicked out of the synagogue? Well, we really have nothing like it today. The synagogue was not just the place of worship, but it was like the hub of the community. It's where all the social gatherings would take place. It's where you would make your friendships and relationships. It's where all legal interactions would take place. So if you were kicked out of the synagogue, you were kicked out of the community. You would be suffering from severe isolation. And his parents were afraid of that. So they were not willing to say anything further. But as we know, many people were. Many people were willing to be desynagogued because they would refuse to not claim that Jesus was in fact the Messiah, that he was the light of the world who was burst onto the sea. Are we willing to be desynagogued today, friends? Sometimes it's not easy to follow Christ in a culture that doesn't want us to. But what's more important, the synagogue or my relationship with the Lord? just keeps getting better here. Just put yourself in this poor guy's shoes right now. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. That just is like, they're putting him under oath right there. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And by the way, let us provide the truth for you. This man's a sinner. Got it? Now read his response in verse 25 out loud with me on your notes. It says, He replied, Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. What a great response. This man discovers something that is so easy for us to miss. If you're on your notes, you don't need to understand everything to believe in something. You don't need to understand everything to believe in something. That's why so many people today, just like the Pharisees, they push back so hard on Christianity and the claims Jesus makes because they've got a lot of questions. And they think until every single one of them is explained to their satisfaction, they will not believe. See, the Pharisees understood everything, right? And therefore, they could not even believe something undeniable. Now he can see. By the way, what an awesome example of witnessing we have in that guy right there, right? Witnessing. We get so scared by that word. It just means sharing what God has done in my life. Sharing what God has done in my life. This guy was not a master in theology. He didn't have apologetics down. In fact, the only thing he knew is what God had done in his life. He was an expert on him. 
And I'm going to bet you're the best expert on you. And witnessing just means sharing what God has done in your life. I was blind. I know that. And now I can see. I know that as well. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? What? How? Why? Not? Who? And I can imagine he must be getting really impatient at this point. This guy has been blind his whole life. Don't you think he'd want to see some stuff? You know, maybe the temple would be cool. The sky, the birds. No, he's stuck in a synagogue court right now, staring at these angry faces. So look at his response. He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And this is great. Do you want to become his disciples too? (laughs) Wrong thing to say. Verse 28. Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We what? Know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Since we don't know it and we can't explain it, it must not be true. And you know, we are the keepers of all knowledge. Who's blind in this story? Verse 30. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. In other words, everybody else knows where he's from. He's from God, but you religious leaders are missing the truth that is right in front of your eyes. You're facing the greatest miracle anyone has ever seen. But you're blind. You're blind to what is undeniable. Now one of this, my favorite parts of this whole story, maybe you've noticed this, is how this man has started to grow in his faith throughout, right? His understanding of who Jesus was. At first, when they asked who did this, he simply describes Jesus as the man. The man Jesus. That's a good place to start with him. But as it goes on and on, he next describes him as a prophet, which is where a lot of people stop today with Jesus. It's, it's good. It's a, an apt description of who he was. But now we get to the point Or he is starting to realize, he's beginning to see, if you will, that Jesus is in fact from God. He describes him as being from God. If you're following, the more they question him, the more they question him, the clearer his vision about Jesus gets. The clearer his vision gets. Verse 34, to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. No parade, no cake, no celebration. Excommunication. Because we can't explain it. Who's blind in this story? Look, I know firsthand as a clay vessel myself, that is so easy. It is so easy to think I'm all wise, and I'm all powerful, and I need to understand anything to believe in something. Because I am the keeper of all knowledge. And we begin to think that we're strong. We begin to think we're self-sufficient. And we begin to think that we are God. And we can't see what is undeniably true. There's an old axiom that says, seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. Jesus just flipped that on his head. He says, believing is seeing. 
Believing is seeing, and that's the cure for spiritual blindness. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, let's just pause there, how cool is that? When he found him, St. John Christendom commenting on this passage said, the Jews cast him out of the temple, but the Lord of the temple found him. He is a God who pursues us. He is a God who pursues us even in our blindness. Aren't you glad? That was pretty weak. How about an amen? He is a God that pursues us even in our blindness. Aren't we glad? He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now I'm sure the guy recognizes his voice at this point, right? He'd never seen Jesus. But he recognizes this voice and Jesus asks him the most important fundamental question whether or not he is ready to receive his complete sight. He'd been physically restored, now he's asking the question, are you ready to be spiritually restored as well? If you're following, Jesus invites him to now receive complete vision. Verse 36, who is he, sir? The man asked, who is this son of man? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't you need some more explanation here? Don't you need to understand everything before you believe in anything? No, you see, once I was blind, and now I can see. And you're the guy who did it for me, so you just point me to this son of man, and I'll believe. I don't need any more evidence or explanation. Jesus said, you have now seen him. What a powerful play on words that is. You have now seen him. Your eyes have been opened. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Not only will I open your physical eyes, friend, I am opening your spiritual eyes just as we speak. I invite you to see me for who I am. So what does this man do? Read verse 38 out loud on your notes. It says, Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. No questions, no, well, before I believe, could you just explain the whole mud thing to me? Because that's really confusing with the Sabbath. And I really need to understand... I was blind, but now I see, I believe, and he worshipped him. Friends, this is an amazing miracle of Jesus healing a man's physical blindness, but the most amazing miracle, the most amazing miracle is that this man received his complete vision. And we, too, who are born blind, we are all born blind. Jesus has come to restore sight to us. He's gone from seeing Jesus as a man to a prophet to being from God and suddenly the picture has come into complete focus for him and he worships this son of man and this son of God. If Jesus were not God, he would not have allowed this man to worship him. But he gladly allows it and for the first time in his life he can see. So what if he's thrown out of the synagogue? So what if the authorities, real or self-appointed, have declared him to be a sinner? He must follow where the truth leads. Now, in case we miss the application here, maybe I don't even need to say anything, but Jesus wants to make sure we get it, so he gives a little mini-sermon in those three verses at the end here. So let's read verse 39 out loud together. Here's a little application moment. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Now that's confusing. In John 3.17, Jesus declared that his purpose for coming to earth was not to hold people accountable for sin or to sit in judgment. He's going to do that on his return. 
We read that in Daniel 7 and Revelation 20. However, as he says here, he is the light of the world shining into darkness. Therefore, every time someone encounters Jesus, like we are right now, if you are hearing the truth from his word, every time we encounter Jesus, light is being shown in our darkness. And if that, and in that moment, we see in Jesus nothing to desire, nothing to admire, nothing to love, nothing to worship, then we have judged ourselves. Because we prefer darkness to light. If, however, we see in Jesus someone to wonder at, someone to reach out to, someone to worship, then we are on our way to God. Those who are conscious of their blindness, those who know, I don't understand everything, nor do I have to. Those are the eyes of people who will be open. They will receive total sight. However, those who think they know it all already have already judged themselves. We might say it this way if you're following, only those who know they're blind will be able to see. Only those who know they're blind will be able to see who was really blind in this story. It was those who refused to see. Now they're standing here when Jesus makes this statement. Look at verse 40. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what? Are we blind too? You know who you're talking to? The keepers of knowledge? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. That means those who are blind actually know they need help, right? I mean, if we know we're blind, we know we need some help. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Now that you claim you have it all together, that you know who God is, that you know how God works, You've arrived, that you're self-righteous, you're self-satisfied, and I hate to break it to you, but you're really the blind ones. You see, if you're following those who say, we see, we see, are actually blind. Remember this parable in Luke 18? I mean, it's such a perfect fit for this morning. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus declared in the very first sentence in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who realize they have nothing within themselves to commend them to God. Happy are those who realize I am spiritually bankrupt. And without the grace of Jesus Christ in my life, I have no hope. Theirs is the kingdom of God. There are the eyes who will be opened. Friends, the application is pretty straightforward. The way of seeing is essentially admitting that you're blind. The way of seeing is essentially admitting you're blind. Those who do not see are those who realize their need for a Savior, and they come to Him. And they see. But those who do see, 
do not realize their need for the Savior. They think they have all the answers. And they'll become blind because they will refuse to accept what is undeniable. It's undeniable. Jesus really existed. Jesus really was God in the flesh. Jesus really did take our sin upon His shoulder and He really did rise again from the grave and He really did offer us life and life to the full. He is the light of the world. Do you see Him today? Do you see Him? I'm reading through the Chronicles of Narnia with uh, our daughter Kirsten. Uh, we've been doing this for a couple of years now. Um, and we are, uh, we're in The Magician's Nephew right now, which is actually, if you don't know anything about the Chronicles of Narnia, sorry, but it's a, it's a book, uh, kind of a parallel uh, to, the, to the Bible, the Gospel. And in The Magician's Nephew, it's all about Aslan, who is the Jesus figure, singing creation, the creation of Narnia. It's the first book. It's how Narnia was made. And there's this really powerful text we came across a few nights ago that describes everything we've learned this morning that I'd like to close with and read to you. There's this figure in, the, in this book called Uncle Andrew. And Uncle Andrew's, I guess you would say, uh, the blind guy. He just can't see things for how he should see them. So listen. When the great moment came and the beast spoke, he, Uncle Andrew, missed the whole point for a rather interesting reason. When the lion had first begun singing, long ago when it was still quite dark, he had realized that the noise was a song, and he had disliked the song very much. It made him think and feel things he did not want to think and feel. Then, when the sun rose and he saw that the singer was a lion, only a lion, he said to himself, he tried his hardest to make himself believe that it wasn't singing and never had been singing, only roaring as any lion might in a zoo in our own world. Of course, it can't really have been singing, he thought. I must have imagined it. I've been letting my nerves get out of order. Who ever heard of a lion singing? And the longer and more beautifully the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but it roaring. Now the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. <laughs> Uncle Andrew did. He did not hear, or he soon did hear nothing but roaring in Aslan's song. Soon he couldn't have heard anything else even if he had wanted to. And when at last the lion spoke and said, Narnia, awake, he didn't hear any words. He heard only a snarl. And when the beast spoke in answer, he heard only barkings, growlings, bayings, and howlings. Those who are blind will receive their sight, but those who think they can see will remain blind. But listen, listen, the opportunity to see is available as much as it was that day for that blind man as it is for us today. The only thing we do, this is what makes the gospel good news, the only thing we do if you're falling on your notes is will I confess I'm blind? Will I confess I'm blind and let Jesus restore my sight? He has come as the light of the world to give sight to the blind. Will you receive your sight this morning? Let's pray. Lord, I confess to you every time, almost, <laughs> I preach on the Pharisees. It's so easy for me to get up on my throne of judgment, shake my head at them and wonder, how could they have missed it? And then I look in the mirror and realize I am but a clay pot. 
that I think more highly of my knowledge, of my skills, and my wisdom than I really should. And so this morning I confess to you, and I know many others as well would like to do this, we confess to you that we're blind sometimes. But we want to receive the incredible truth that we learned this morning, that you came for that very purpose. You came to restore our sight. And we do that by faith. So Lord, if there is any person in this room this morning who knows they are blind, who is willing to admit it and confess it to you, I pray they would do that right now. And by faith, we know, we know what is undeniable, that you will give them sight. Just like you had the scales fall off from Paul's eyes, we pray that many scales would fall off in this room this morning. And Lord, just like the man who you healed physically and spiritually, we want to spend these next 10 minutes doing what he did. We want to worship you. We want to worship you for who you are and for what you did for us. So we give you this time now. May you be glorified. May you be honored as we sing our songs of praise and thanksgiving. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world, Jesus. And you have come to restore our sight. And we are so glad. Amen.